The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 2, verse 18. We pick up in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Mark, answering the big question, who is this man? And the more we learn about the person and work of Jesus, it does really one of two things. When we encounter Christ, it either makes us love him more, worship him more, stand in awe of him more, or as we encounter the person and work of Christ, it drives us away. It makes us angry because as we come into the light, it exposes the condition of our heart. And this is what our section of scripture really does today. In chapter one, Mark uh, endeavored to establish the authority and deity of Jesus Christ. Right out of the gate, he says, this man is God, and as God, he is the boss. But this, inevitably, it enrages the Pharisees, doesn't it? It makes them mad. They were the supposed spiritual elite of the day. But his gospel, it is drastically different than their teaching. So much so that the people are amazed. They're in awe. They're like, we've never heard teaching like this. We've never seen a man like this. And so in in chapters two and three then, Mark records five successive conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. A couple weeks ago, we saw the first two, and so today we're going to look at the final three. See, conflict happens when there are two opposing views that collide together. And after confronting Jesus about forgiving the sins of a paralyzed man, and then the friends he chose to eat with, they now try to corner Jesus about fasting, and then about eating on the Sabbath. And then about healing on the Sabbath. And you'll see that their anger builds so much that by the end of this passage, they want to destroy Jesus. They want to to take him out. They're so mad. But what was it that Jesus was saying or doing that made them so mad? Well, here's the thing. Following Jesus is about the essence, not the form. Let me say that again. Following Jesus is about the essence, not the form. See, the Pharisees had built a form of religion that was so complex and so burdensome that it was impossible to follow. It was unbiblical, for they had added rules upon rules upon rules to follow very simple Old Testament commands. And what it did was keep people in bondage to this system, to a form of religion that totally left out the heart or the essence of faith. But beloved, Jesus is about the heart. He makes all things new, especially our hearts. And as Jesus comes here in these scenes and as Jesus comes into our life, he peels back the forms, he peels back the layers, and he exposes the heart for what's really inside. And so as we look at these three conflicts or these three sections in our passage today, you're going to see him doing this, just exposing something in the Pharisees and teaching us these principles. And so look with me now at Mark chapter 2, verse 18. I want to read for us our first section in 18 to 22. It says this, Now John's disciples 
and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, though new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word for God's people. See, beloved, this section teaches us this. Examine your expectations. Examine your expectation. It's an interesting pairing here of two unlikely groups. John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, with the Pharisees and their disciples. At this point in, the, in, in time, John the Baptist, he is in prison. And yet both of them are practicing fasting. They are, they are withholding or abstaining from food. And what's interesting is the Old Testament, it really only actually mandated one day every year to fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement, when they would take two rams and, and one was slaughtered and the other was, the sin was put on and cast out into the wilderness. That was a day mandated for fasting. There were other times in, of fasting that were, were given. They were non-mandatory when people would be grieving or mourning when there would be remorse or repentance of sin, or when there was a genuine pursuit of God for direction. They could fast. But the Pharisees in their form or their ritualistic uh, traditions, they fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, really to flaunt their religiosity. Look how spiritual we are. We abstain from food two times a week. But what's interesting here is that these two are together. John's disciples likely come to learn. They were fasting, they had, been, uh, they had been discipled by him, and now they, uh, they had crossed paths with the Pharisees, but the Pharisees' motives come abundantly clear here. They had come to trap Jesus. They had come trying to expose him and ask their question. But what does Jesus do? He says, well, we fast, we're religious, but you don't. What's going on here? And so Jesus, in his brilliance, he replies with a question and three illustrations, really, to expose the Pharisees as imposters. He exposes them as imposters. He uses this first illustration of a wedding. The wedding guests come, and the bride is with them, and they can't fast with a wedding, right? Just think about it here. Think of even in our own context. You know, in, in, in their context, the wedding celebration was a week long, I think we have something to learn about that, don't we? We try to cram everything into like one day, all the setup into like four or five hours and everybody's running around crazy and then a celebration for like four or five hours and then we try to get that four or five hours of setup all torn down into like four or five minutes, right? <laughs> At least maybe the weddings that we're a part of, but like why not a whole week, right? Like they had something going on, but it was a, what are weddings for? Are weddings time for mourning and grieving and fasting? No, what do we do at weddings? We celebrate. celebrate and we feast for sure, don't we? Yes. Mountains of food, big cakes, you know. Oh man, it's a time for celebration. It would be, it would be rude. It would be crazy to fast. And what Jesus is doing here, he's pointing out, he's saying, I'm the groom. I am here among you. 
You are fasting because maybe uh, somewhere in there you are waiting and longing for the Messiah to come. And he's saying, I'm right here. I am here among you. Right now is the time to celebrate. You're missing the point of trying to trap me in, in fasting because I am here. I am here and my disciples know this. They didn't acknowledge Jesus as God. They didn't acknowledge him as the Messiah. They're still waiting. They're still confused. They're still trying to trap him. But let's take a little commercial break here. This raises the question for us. Should we fast today as believers? Should we fast? Is this a good, right, beneficial discipline or practice among God's people today? Because we know Christ has come, right? We know that Christ is, is a Lord. He is the King. He is the Messiah. Amen? Amen? Amen, he is. And so should we fast today? Well, I would say the answer is yes. Yes, as we look through the scriptures, yes, even as we trust that Christ is God, we know that he is the groom, that we as the church are the bride, that fasting is a spiritual discipline as we wait for his return and as we express our dependence and as we seek to know him more intimately. It is a good and right spiritual discipline. It is not, here let me make this clear, it is not a spiritual form of dieting. Okay? It is not a spiritual form of dieting, nor is it a mandatory tradition, but it is a blessed tool from the Lord to grow closer to him. It's a way that we actively express before the Lord, God, more than this body needs food, I need you to come through in blank. Maybe as you're praying for a loved one to come to faith. Maybe as you're praying for a job situation to change. As you are praying or walking through a season that you know, God, you have to come through. There is no, nothing I can do to change this situation. We can fast for that. We can fast just simply because we, because we love the Lord and we, we want to know him more intimately. But let me be clear, fasting is also not a way to manipulate God. It's not a way, hey, I've, I've fasted multiple days this week. I've fasted now, I've fasted 14 days straight. Why aren't you coming through, God? Like, hey, like, pay attention down here. It is not a way to manipulate God, but it is a way to know him intimately. It is a way to express our dependence as we wait for his return, as we wait for his plan to unfold his direction before us. Brothers and sisters, if you have not already, add fasting to your worship and your walk with Christ. But let me implore you, do not forget the essence, the heart. You must examine your expectations as you even engage in this walk with the Lord. But let's come back here. Let's come back. Now, they're trying to trap Jesus. They, they have this form of religion, and so Jesus uses this question, but he goes on here to, to clarify. He, he, he's, he's actually like taking the point even a step further. He uses first the example of a wedding, and then he uses the example of patching clothes and then wineskins. And so think about it here. It's still kind of the same. If you have old clothes that have been washed multiple times, they shrink, right? You know, it's kind of one of those things. Like you, when, even when you're buying a shirt, you sometimes ask, hey, is this pre-shrunk or, or not? because clothes, the fibers just kinda compact and, and, and they come together. And so as clothes get worn out and holes get formed, especially if you have like young elementary boys, their knees just like wear out all the time in their pants down there. But those unshrunk things, if you take a, a patch that has not been shrunk and you try to sew that in there, and then the next time you wash it or that patch shrinks, what's it gonna do? It's gonna tear away. 
It's going to tear away. The same is in the illustration of the wineskins. And so what they would do is they would take an animal skin, they would sew it up and kind of leave the leg, you know, open as like a spout, and they would put the uh, unfermented wine into it, and then they would tie it off or, or, you know, seal it up, and that wine would then ferment, which the gas is exposed, or would would then expand, and it would then uh, expand the skins, the, uh, they would, it would stretch them to their limits. And so then, you know, they would drink the wine or whatnot. But then that skin was really played out. You couldn't use it again. You couldn't take it and then take another batch and put it in there, the unfermented uh, uh, juice in there. And then as it fermented, it would go, poosh, then you would have one big mess on your hands, wouldn't you? Beloved, here's Jesus' point in this. Jesus isn't an add-on to our life. Jesus isn't just some like add-on, like we're living our life, we're doing our thing, and we, you know, we're just like, well, you know what, like, I guess I could just add this Jesus thing into here. I could just patch it up, you know, uh, like, like a pair of clothes, or just patch it on. See, beloved, Jesus didn't come to patch up your filthy rags. He came to give you new clothes. He came to give us new clothes. He didn't just come to like, just be a, a, like a, some flavoring into your life. He came and gave you new life. Fasting and, and these spiritual disciplines are not just things that we like add into our life. He comes to give entirely new lives to those that repent and believe in him. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what he came to do, not just fix us, but to make us new. And we repent, we say, God, my old way of life, my old clothes, my old things, I'm done with them, I'm done, I'm done but I believe in you, Christ. And he then comes and gives us a new heart. Gives us a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of speaking, a new way of doing things. It's new fruit. Beloved, this is what Christ came to do. And this is what he exposes in the Pharisees. It was so counter to their message. It was so counter to the way that they were living because they were trying to just like put all these things together. And Jesus is like, no, no, you have to do away with all your rules, all, away with all your forms, away with all of these things and get back to the essence. I've come to give a new life. And he goes on here. Look at verse 23. He's gonna peel back another layer in 23 to 28. Let's read it here. Look at your Bibles. This is Mark 2, verse 23. It goes on. He says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's word for God's people. And here's the thing, we must reorder our rest. We must reorder our rest. In this passage now, Jesus and his disciples are out for a nice Saturday stroll. They're walking through the fields, they're walking through the grain fields here, and they want to have a little snack. And what's interesting here is all the rules that the Pharisees had, how they could be following Jesus anyways. And the irony is, is what they are doing is actually allowed. 
They say, why is he doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That is, he's not referring to uh, an Old Testament violation. It's a Pharisaical violation, but not an Old Testament violation. Look at this passage here on the screen in Deuteronomy 23. I'll read it for you. It says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. See, God made in his kindness and in his wisdom, he made provisions for people as they were walking. Just by hand, you could pick the grain, you could shuck them, and you could have a little snack of the grains that you're going. Now, it would be against the law here. You couldn't just take your knife or your sickle and chop down the whole thing and just kind of take it for yourself and you know, have a snack for the whole way. But a few kernels, one ear, whatever you could take. God actually made provisions. They weren't actually breaking the law though they were breaking their laws. And they had all kinds of things. As I was researching this and going, I wanna I want just read for you a little bit of the, uh, of the craziness that Pharisees had on the Sabbath. Listen to this. Almost no area of life was spared from the fastidious Sabbath regulations of the rabbis, which were designed to gain God's favor. There were laws about wine, honey, milk, spitting, writing, and getting dirt off of clothes. Anything that might be contrived as work was forbidden. Thus, on a Sabbath, scribes could not carry their pens, tailors could not carry their needles, or students their books. To do so might tempt them to work on the Sabbath. For that matter, carrying anything heavier than a dried fig was forbidden. And if the object in question had been picked up in a public place, it could only be set down in a private place. If the object were tossed into the air, it had to be caught with the same hand. To catch it with the other hand would constitute work and therefore be a violation of the Sabbath. No insects could be killed. No candle or flame could be lit or extinguished. Nothing could be bought or sold. No bathing was allowed since water might spill onto the floor and accidentally wash it. No furniture could be moved inside the house since it might create ruts in the dirt floor and thereby constitute plowing. An egg could not even be boiled if all one did was place it in the hot desert sand. A radish could not be left in salt because it might become a pickle and pickling constituted work. Sick people were only allowed enough treatment to keep them alive. Any medical treatment that improved their condition was considered work and therefore prohibited. It was not even permissible, get this one ladies, it was not permissible for women to look in a mirror since they might be tempted to pull out any gray hairs they spotted. <laughs> Nor were they allowed to wear jewelry since jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. Now we referred to dried figs twice and so actually we have a little bag of them so this is a dried fig. I don't know what maybe you were thinking this was sitting up here but it is a dried fig. <laughs> It's very light here, some ketchup. No, don't throw. But this is, this is striving. You see how ridiculous things were? Like they were just building layer upon layer upon layer of rules in order to keep very simple commands of the Lord, rules and a law that was designed to draw us closer to the Lord. But they had totally left behind the scripture and its meaning for their own rules, for their own forms of religion, which Jesus here once again exposes them. Before he exposed them as imposters, now he's exposing their ignorance. Their ignorance. Look at his question here in verse 25. He says, Have you never read what David did? You can almost hear some of his, his like exasperation in his voice. Of course they had. 
This is 1 Samuel 21. You can read it this afternoon. They read it. David was on the run. He had his soldiers or his warriors with him, and they go to Abiathar the high priest, and they're hungry. They're emaciated. They need food because Saul and his armies are chasing them, and so they go to this high priest, and they ask for the bread of the presence, which was off limits. It would be put there on Sabbath day, and then it would stay there a week, and then that was the food that the priests were provided for, and, and it was off limits to just any common, uh, just regular people. So there were provisions for this. And yet God in his mercy overrode this rule in order to care with compassion for God's people, for David and his people. And so God allowed this rule to be broken to meet this legitimate human need because he cares about his people and their hearts. And the Pharisees here, they had totally missed the point of the Sabbath, which was a gift of God for our blessing and they had turned it rather into a crushing burden. This again raises another important question. Are we required to observe the Sabbath today? And the answer is, is no in this case. Say that it is not required of us to observe the Sabbath in the same way. The new covenant has done away with it. Sunday is now the Lord's day. Sabbath, uh, the Sabbath in their day was Saturday. Jesus, he says that here he is Lord over the Sabbath. And so we, uh, beginning in the early church, we have began celebrating or worshiping God on the day that he rose again. So it was switched to Sunday. It is a day set aside for worship, for teaching, and for fellowship. Strict adherence, just out of tradition, misses the point when the heart of the Sabbath is one of rest. It is God's blessing, body and soul refreshment. As God gives us rest, we work and we rest as unto him. But you know, we're pretty good at doing these types of things, aren't we? We're pretty, we're pretty good ourselves at, at creating all sorts of kind of rules and regulations to kind of trick ourselves into some form of godliness. And we, we, can, we can maybe very deliberately or maybe unintentionally here ignore what the Bible says and means on all sorts of issues. In the same way that we can't just add Jesus into our life in the way that we are going, we can't just add traditions, add these forms around us and somehow think that that gives us more of Christ. If they miss the essence, then they become a barrier. Take rest, for example. The, the issue in our passage, the, the heart behind the Sabbath, sleep and Sabbathing are gifts from God, but they are not the end goal. We don't work all week for the weekends. We don't work all year for a vacation. We work and we rest for the glory of God. These things are not our priorities. They're not what we live for because that is called idolatry. But we work and we rest for the Lord who's given us new priorities and new motivations. And this is what he exposes now in this final conflict in the beginning of chapter three. This last layer here actually gets kind of ugly. Why don't you read it with me now? Mark 3, 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath, or heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. 
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Beloved, let us measure our motives. Let us measure our motives. See, this final conflict here in the series of five at the beginning of Jesus' ministry really exposes these heart issues. This scene here is likely a, a week after, not the same day as the previous scene. He's back in, in the, on the Sabbath in a synagogue in an unknown city. But in this congregation, in this gathering of people is a man with a withered hand. Picture it like a withered flower. It's lifeless. It's, it's, it's useless. He has no uh, move, mobility or movement in it. It's just like a dead, limp flower. And the, and the scene here is they, the, the Pharisees, are watching Jesus. They're waiting to pounce like tigers after a prey. You almost get the impression that they put this guy in the, in the congregation. They went out and found him just like to set a trap for Christ. What is this guy going to do? Is he going to follow our Sabbath rules? But Jesus is wise to the situation, isn't he? He's wise to it, and he now exposes their insolence with his question. He exposes their insolence, their anger, their rudeness. He springs the trap back on them so that they were silent. He asks the question, he gets to the point here, and it's like, well, is it good, right? Well, beloved, it's never right to kill or to harm anyone on any day of the week, is it? Let alone the Sabbath, it is always good and right to save lives. And so Jesus, of course, he's angry, he's grieved by their hard hearts, for their motives are wicked, where Jesus is motivated by compassion. And he tells the man, come here, and he heals the man's hand. Picture in your mind that, that dead, withered, wilted, lifeless flower. And now this man's hand, like a blooming flower, comes to life. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the muscles and the tendons and the tissues all of a sudden uh, having strength and vitality that they've never had before? What was once immobile is now able to move and stretch and grip and grasp all as in a way that it had never done before, right before their very eyes. And as these people encounter the person and work of Christ, it hardens them, it drives them away. Listen to how this commentator describes the situation. By framing the extremes, Jesus forced the Pharisees to shut their mouths. They knew what the Old Testament said. They knew the intent of the Sabbath was good. It was for good and not harm. The Lord's question forced them to grapple with the real issue. Who was honoring God here? Was it the one who desired to show mercy and compassion toward people? Or was it those who ignored the suffering of others in order to maintain strict adherence to their own man-made regulations? Beloved, like in all these scenes, it's easy to ridicule the Pharisees, isn't it? It's easy, easy to point out their hard-heartedness. It's easy to be angry and grieved at their hardness of heart, like Christ. They, it's easy. To, but the real heart work here is to measure our own motivations. Why is it that we do good works? Is it to feel good about ourselves? Is it to be noticed by the people around us? Is it to be pleased God? Is it, are we motivated by compassion? Are we motivated by the good news of Jesus Christ? 
Or why is it on the flip side, why is it that we neglect good works? Is it because we are hard-hearted? Is it because we lack compassion? Is it because we have some sort of wrong sense of justice that people are just getting what they deserve? If they had never sinned in the first place, they wouldn't have found themselves in this situation? And as important as the things we do or don't do, so too is the heart behind it, isn't it? Why, why do we do what is good? Why is it that we do what is right? And see, following Jesus is about the essence, not the form. And as God gives us a new heart by his spirit through the work of Christ, he gives us new motivations. We who truly, genuinely know the grace and mercy and compassion of God want others to know that as well. We want them to know the things that we have experienced by, from the Lord, by the hands of his people. And this motivates us to be about this good work. But when we're so set up in like our, 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 our forms of religion, when we're so like, well, I can't go out there because I have all these things and that would interrupt these things and I can't, I, I, uh, put those things away. And let us be motivated by compassion for the brokenness that is around us, that Christ would himself come and give these people a new heart as well. See, because when we're all about our forms, it makes us do all kinds of crazy things. Look how, the, at how this passage ends. The Pharisees, they can now conspire with the Herodians, which just, if you don't know anything about the history here, the, the Herodians were secular Jewish people. They were those that were non-religious and were loyal to Rome. And so the, that, that phrase that maybe you've heard, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that's at play here. These two were normally enemies, because here you have religious, very strict religious Jews, and now you have those that are non-religious, that are loyal to the political government. But now they are both upset at a common enemy, at Christ. The Pharisees, because Jesus is trying to turn over their religious system, and the Herodians, because Jesus could eventually throw over their political system. And now they join forces against Jesus with this scary word, to destroy him. Beloved, are we in that place? Are we motivated by compassion? Has God given us a new heart? See, the why is just as important as the how and the things that we think, say, and do, aren't they? The why is just as important. Are we in agreement with the Bible's commands and wisdoms? Are we advancing the gospel through the Great Commission? These are great questions to humbly bring us before God, before the scriptures. And God in his kindness answers us. He exposes what was what is right and good for us to do. See, sometimes we don't wanna ask these kind of heart questions because we're afraid of what we'll find. We're afraid of what really does motivate us. We're afraid of what, what really our expectations are. We're, we're afraid of the, the things that we've set up and, and we've, found, we've found like strength and safety within our form of religion and totally miss the essence of following Christ. But as we come to the Lord, he is gracious and kind, isn't he? So we who are his children, as we come to the Lord, it leads us to deeper worship. But it drives make-believers to declare war. Beloved, do you have a new heart today? Has God given you a new heart, new desires, new motivations? Or are you clinging to your old ways of life? Are you clinging to the forms of religion and totally missed the heart? 
See, Christ is the maker of all things new. He's the one who's made all things new. He's the one who's brought redemption. His spirit who gives new life in Christ. Who's raised us to new life. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we're here, aren't we? To proclaim just what God has done and that leads us to greater worship. You know what's really cool about today? God and his sovereignty as we're uh, preaching through this passage is we get to declare new life as two men among us will be baptized in just a minute. God has done a good work in and through these men and saving them and redeeming them and making them new. And so what we're gonna do now is as we kind of transition to that is we're gonna worship the Lord. What could we do, right? What else could we do but worship the Lord and give him all the praise and glory and honor that is due to his name, right? And so we're gonna pray. Uh, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna worship and then uh, uh, we'll close our service as we hear these two beautiful proclamations of the good news of Jesus Christ in these people's lives. So let's pray now. God in heaven, thank you for uh, this passage of scripture. Thank you for your work in our life. Thank you, God, that you have uh, done a new thing. And so, Lord, as we, uh, as we are, are here and thinking about these things, as you, by your spirit, are, are doing your work in our heart, Lord, let us not be prideful. Let us not be arrogant. Let us not uh, think, oh, the Pharisees are those guys. But let us, Lord, in your mercy, examine our own hearts. Even now, as we come to worship you, even now, as we come to proclaim your goodness to us, So we give you all the praise and the glory, God. As we uh, turn our attention vertical, would you have a heart impact in our life now? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.